Well, good morning, Fellowship Nashville. My name's Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to have you join us as we continue celebrating Advent season. As you may, may know, Advent is a word that means arrival or coming. And so at Advent, we celebrate the first arrival or coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate his birth in Bethlehem. And I've got to admit, I carry mixed emotions into this season. On the one hand, it's one of my favorite times of year because I love Christmas songs, the ambiance of the Christmas um, season with the lights and the Christmas trees, um, the fire in the fireplace, the exchanging of gifts, the special time spent with family and friends. But on the other hand, it's one of my least favorite times of year. Not only because of the cheesy gag-worthy Hallmark movies, yes, that was for you, Molly, Um, but mainly because of the hustle and bustle of all the extra things surrounding Christmas. Last-minute shopping to get done, parties to attend, travel, traffic jams, overly full calendars, extra meetings, year-end deadlines. If you're a college student, studying for finals, big papers and projects to finish. More stuff to do than time to do it in. How many of you can relate with that? Okay, most of you. Advent is supposed to be a time of reflection, a time to slow down, remember the significance of Jesus' birth. It can also serve as a time of anticipation, looking forward to the second Advent, pausing, pondering, reflecting. And yet it's perhaps the busiest time of the year. And in all the hustle of it all, our souls become depleted. And we find ourselves saying, I just don't have room for fill in the blank. I just don't have room. You know, this happened to me this past week. About a month ago, I um, agreed to do a favor for a friend, a favor that would take a significant chunk out of my week. And I thought, oh, that's a month from now. Yeah, I'll have plenty of time. Well, as this past week arrived, my calendar had filled up, and I'm staring at this chunk of time in my calendar that I had committed to this friend. I'm going, oh, I just don't have room for this. So I've got, I, I went ahead and did it, but I've got to admit, I did it with somewhat of a begrudging heart in the midst of the business. Now, don't worry, this friend doesn't go to our church and probably doesn't have time to watch me preach online, so he will not be offended by my poor attitude. But um, it's so hard to make room for things this time of year. And ironically, at Christmas time, it's hard to make room for Christ. It's difficult to make room for the things that he wants to do in us, to do through us. And it's for this reason we've chosen to title our Advent Sermon Series, Make Room, Make Room. And in this series, we want to take a fresh look at the characters and the stories told in the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel. Characters who will serve as examples to us of how to make room for Jesus in the midst of a busy culture where there seems to be no room. And here's what we need to remember There is perhaps just as much busyness, just as much hustle and bustle in the world 2,000 years ago as there was, as there is today. At Jesus' first arrival, there's a census um, decreed by Caesar Augustus for all the world to be taxed. So everybody had to travel. So there's, there's travel, there's traffic jams, there's inconvenience trying to fulfill this decree to be registered for taxation. No room for in the inn. For a young pregnant couple. Last week we lit the Advent candle of hope. And we looked at the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. 
Elizabeth and how they had opportunity to make room for the unexpected as God brought them the unexpected hope of a child in their old age, a child who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Well, today, as we light the candle of faith, we're going to look at the amazing faith of a young, poor girl from the small, insignificant town of Nazareth in Galilee, who's going to teach us how to make room for the inconvenient. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're going to also put the words up on the screen behind me. But if you don't own your own copy of the Bible, please visit our Connect Point at the back and take one as our Christmas gift to you. And if you're able, please stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb, in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child, will be, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. Now, one of the things I enjoy most about Luke's writing is the human element that he he, um, weaves into his narratives. Um, it's fascinating to study the theological significance behind passages like this and the events that Luke records for us. But he writes in such a way that, that we catch a glimpse of the fact that the people in his stories were real people with real emotions, with real feelings, with, with real hopes and dreams and even problems. They were people like you and like me. And because of what Luke says at the beginning of chapter 1 about how he assembled his gospel, it's quite likely that he sat down with Mary in her old age as an eyewitness to these events and asked her, what was it like? What was it like to have an angel appear to you as you were younger and preparing to get married? And he listened intently and he wrote down what he heard. So instead of focusing on the theological significance of the virgin conception and how Mary's divinely initiated pregnancy was the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah, I'd like to draw your attention to the human side of the story that Luke expounds on in his narrative. Yes, there's a lot of rich theological truth in the passage that we, we read today, but the main thing I want us to consider together this morning is something that we don't often consider, and that's this. What would it have been like to be in Mary's shoes in this story? 
What would it have been like to be in Mary's, well, sandals maybe, I don't know what she wore, but what, or maybe she didn't wear shoes, I don't know. What would it have been like to be in Mary's shoes in this story? Let's begin by looking again at what Luke tells us about Mary. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man who was, whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The first thing that I'd like us to observe together in our narrative is that Mary was, in fact, a young girl. Say that out loud with me. Mary was a young girl. Luke identifies Mary in this text as a virgin betrothed to be married. Oh, a betrothal was a first century Jewish equivalent to an engagement period except it involved much more commitment than our version here in our culture of engagement. It was a binding commitment, a binding agreement between the bride's family and the groom's family. And a betrothed woman was considered legally married, even though she still lived in her father's house. So to break off a betrothal back then, you had to have a certificate of divorce. Now, now when you picture Mary in this scene, how old do you typically consider her to be in your mind? Early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s? If that's your picture, you need to get another image in your head. Here's what you need to know. In first century Jewish culture, almost all girls were married by age 16. I know that sounds young to our ears, but that was the reality. Married by age 16. So to be an unmarried, betrothed virgin in that day meant that, meant that Mary would have been 14 years of age, perhaps, 15 years of age max, when the angel appeared to her. If we were to transport her here to the 21st century, she would not be old enough to trust with driving a car. Might have had her learner's permit, but not her driver's license. Emma, will you please come I'm going to invite my daughter up here. This is my daughter, Emma. Emma turned 14 back in September. And I know she looks young for her age. But when you picture Mary and the angel appearing to Mary, don't picture a 30-year-old. You've got to picture a 14, 15-year-old young woman, except with darker hair and darker skin. Okay? Thank you. I warned her that I was going to do that. She was cool with it. Thank you, Emma. Mary was a young girl. And secondly, she was from an insignificant town. In verse 26, we find that, that Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, we think city, we think city, right? And if you were to go to uh, Israel today and visit the city of Nazareth, it's a city of about 100,000 people. But then you'd get the... If you were to do that, you would get the wrong impression of what Nazareth was like back in Jesus' day. Nazareth was not a town of thousands. It was a town of hundreds, um, 500 maximum at best. It was a simple rural town, the kind you might pass through, but it's not a destination by any means. How many of you have ever been on a road trip and you pull up to a small town? Your only goal is to stop, get a little bit of gas, Maybe, uh, maybe a drink from the fridge, use the bathroom, clean the bugs off the windshield, and get out of there as soon as you can, thanking God that that's not where you live, okay? Are any of you from a small, dumpy, rural, hick town like that? 
Okay, a couple, all right. Well, your number one goal in life was to leave. That's Nazareth, okay? That's what you need to picture when you picture Nazareth. In chapter one of John's gospel, Nathaniel asks the sarcastic question, can anything good come from Nazareth? And, and the expected answer is what? <laughs> no, no. So when we hear Nazareth, we need to picture a small rural, t- rural town with just one well for the livestock, simple people, most of whom, including Mary, were uneducated, poor, and likely illiterate. Okay? Mary wasn't middle class. She was a peasant girl, growing up in an environment of subsistence living. That's why I commented she might not have worn shoes. She had her fiancé, Joseph, who likely also grew up in this small, insignificant town. Um, Both of them did not come from money. We know that they lived in poverty because later in the narrative, when they offer a sacrifice together in the temple, they offer two birds instead of a lamb. Well, the two birds is a provision in the Mosaic law for those who could not afford a lamb, for the poorest of the poor. That's Joseph and Mary. You can read about that in Luke 2. Mary was a young girl from an insignificant town, thirdly, with ordinary plans. Ordinary plans. What's an uneducated, poor teenage girl planning to do with her life in Nazareth? Well, educational and vocational opportunities were quite limited for young men in that town, let alone young women in a patriarchal culture. So the entirety of her plans in life were likely to get married and eke out a living with her husband. Her planned marriage to Joseph would have been her lifeline. It would have brought honor and provision to her family because the groom's family would have paid a bride price to her family. Marriage would be her way of making sure her family was taken care of and that she too would be continued to be provided for and protected. So by age 15, betrothed to be married to Joseph, Mary has the agenda of her life all planned out. She knows what she's going to be doing when she grows up. She's got her stuff together. She's doing what's expected of her. She's secure. She's safe. But then all of that is about to be put into jeopardy with an unexpected visitor named Gabriel. The same angel who appeared to uh, last week to Zechariah when he was serving as a priest in the temple. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, this is is Gabriel, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You know, the common human response to seeing an angel throughout the Bible, you know what it is? It's fear. Fear. It's fear. And that's why Gabriel goes on to give the most common angelic response to seeing a human. Do not be afraid. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua. Joshua in the Old Testament. Do you know what that name means? It means the Lord saves. Jesus is just the the Greek equivalent of Joshua. Yeshua. Yeshua. The Lord saves. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and the, of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, he is going to be the promised Messiah, the f- fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. He's the one you've been waiting for. You know, there's a theological goldmine to unpack um, in these words from Gabriel about Jesus, but I'm going to save that for a future Advent sermon, because again, I want us to focus in on Mary. Perch yourself in her sandals. How, how would she be feeling right now? What would, if you, were, if you were her, what would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? Well, we know what she's thinking, because Mary has some questions. She may be uneducated, but she is not dumb. Virgins can't be pregnant. <laughs> Verse 34, Mary has some questions. And he said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then we come to verse 38. And you would expect Mary to say, you expect to say this. And Mary said, Now wait a minute, Gabriel. Time out. Do you realize what this means for me? When Joseph finds out I'm pregnant, he's going to know the baby isn't his. And he's going to assume the worst. And when he assumes the worst, he's going to follow the law and divorce me. And when he divorced me, there goes my future, Gabe. Not only that, but the whole town is going to know that this isn't his kid. And when the whole town knows, that's going to bring shame on me and my whole family. The Pharisees in town will find out. They'll probably drag me into the town square, tie me up to a post, make me an example of, of somebody that does something you shouldn't do that's against the law. I'm going to be considered the town tramp, and nobody is ever going to want to marry me. With all that hanging over my head, there's no chance. My entire life is going to be ruined. You know what, Gabe? You know what you can do with your little announcement here? You can take your so-called message from God and give it to somebody else. I'm out. You know, that would probably be what I would do (laughs) if I was in Mary's shoes. Is that what verse 38 says? And this is shocking. We we need to, to see the significance of this. What does it say? And Mary said, read this out loud with me. Lord, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according." To your word. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You see the significance of this? God had just rewritten the entire script of Mary's future, and now she has a future with a lot of questions, with a lot of negative social outcomes, a very inconvenient future, mind you. And how does Mary respond? She responds in faith. And this is astounding. It's amazing. Mary was a young girl from an insignificant town. Say this with me. Mary was a young girl 
from an insignificant town with ordinary plows who had astounding faith. Astounding faith. She doesn't know at this point that an angel was going to appear to Joseph a while later and tell him not to divorce her. Because when he was planning to do that very thing, she had incredible trust and faith in God here. You know, it's easy to make too much of Mary, like many of our Catholic friends do. But we mustn't make too little of her either, as we Protestants are prone to do. She shouldn't be the object of our faith, but she should most definitely be an example of it. She shouldn't be the object of our worship, but she should most definitely be an example to our faith. We should try to emulate her. So many of us have life completely mapped out, charted out for ourselves, and we simply want to ask, we simply go to God and ask him to bless what we have planned. Here's, here's the plan for my life, God. Would you just sign on the bottom line? So what would you have done if you were in Mary's shoes? How would you have responded? Would you have responded in faith? Would you have said, let it be to me according to your word? Would you have said that? Would you have said, oh God, this is totally different than what I had planned. This is inconvenient to say the least. I don't see how this is going to work out well for me, but I know life is more about my holiness and my happiness. And I'm the Lord's servant. So I'll take it. Let me ask you another question. How have you already responded when the circumstances of your life have been rewritten? When God has taken the script that you handed to him, <laughs> torn it up and handed you a different one. You know, I'm 50 years old now and the script that I uh, had written for my life has been rewritten by God several times now throughout the course of those 50 years. Probably the most significant time being when he moved me and my family here to Tennessee in 2014. And if you know my story, you know that I didn't respond well to that rewrite. I was quite convinced that God had made a mistake, or at least stood by idly and let me make the mistake of moving my family here. But could it be that life's interruptions are in fact God at work? Could it be that God moved me and my family here to Tennessee in 2014 because he wanted to build a deeper faith in us and do deeper redemptive work through us? Could it be that life's inconveniences are actually the fingerprints of God as he rearranges things for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory? Could it be that the inconvenient interruption that's happening in your life right now is actually God behind the scenes weaving his intricate tapestry of redemption? A tapestry that we won't see the completion of and probably until eternity. A tapestry that when we look at it, we only see the underside and all the knots and the mess. And yet the, the top side that God is weaving, it's a beautiful picture. Will you, like Mary, have faith to make room for the inconvenient and say, let it be to me according to your word. Say that one more time with me. Let it be to me according to your word. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the example of Mary. Thank you for her incredible, astounding faith as a young girl whose plans were totally upended, 
with a very inconvenient announcement. Father, thank you for example of faith. And Lord, as we are often confronted with what's inconvenient, we're often interrupt, inter, our plans are often interrupted in this life. Lord, help us to see that you're still at work behind the scenes, that your fingerprints are on, on all of the interruptions, on all of the inconveniences, and that you desire to use us to bring you glory. Your goal is not our happiness, but our holiness. Would you help us to trust you like Mary? Would you help us to, in faith, when life doesn't go as planned, say, let it be to me according to your word and according to your will. Amen. I guess you could say in a way that Jesus took after his mother because on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he knelt in a garden and prayed. What did he pray? Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. In other words, let it be to me according to your word. Worship team is going to lead us in a closing song, and as they do, those of you who've put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come to the table that's in the front. During his first advent, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so all throughout the world, Christians gather. And one of the common things we do is we gather around this table, which is representative of the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, where he took the cup and he reinterpreted it and said, this is my blood that is shed for you. He took the bread, he broke it. This is my body broken for you. They didn't understand fully what that meant. They would come to light the next day when Jesus hung on a cross, his body broken, his blood shed for the remission of sins. So as you come and remember what Christ has done for you, may you also come with anticipation that he will come again. Because he said to his disciples, I will not drink of this cup again until I share it with you in my kingdom. So communion or the Lord's top table is a time to remember and reflect, but it's a time to anticipate what's coming. The second advent. I'm going to invite you to come when you're ready. We're, we'll gather in groups of about eight to ten around this table. I'll lead you and then we'll, you'll shuffle off. We'll get another group up here. As the band, uh, our worship team plays through this song, then we'll close by singing it together. Come to the table.